of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. As promised, we leave the quarto behind somewhat this week and explore a chunk of text that only appears in the folio. It's deposited directly after we cut off in the previous episode, and it's an extension of the scene between Hamlet and his two dear friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Some of the text here is very heady and peculiar, and so there are any number of ways to read it. Uh, Indeed, it has baffled some of the great editors through history. So if it feels like a lot to process, know that you are not alone in thinking so. Hamlet has just pointed out to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that their news is not true. This whole section of the play turns repeatedly around this idea of truth and honesty, and so he questions them a good deal more. Let me question more in particular. What have you, my good friends, deserved at the hands of fortune that she sends you to prison hither? In other words... What on earth have you done to deserve the punishment of having found yourselves here in Denmark? Prison is another key word. We heard it earlier when the ghost refused to tell the secrets of his prison house, which we can infer to mean purgatory. Now here it's Hamlet's turn, and he calls Denmark a prison. Guildenstern is surprised at this analogy. Prison, my lord? And this provokes another of Hamlet's more famous lines in the play. Denmark's a prison. This image inspired the designs and concepts for a great many productions of the play, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, when it was used as a commentary on totalitarian regimes around the world. Several great Soviet productions literally incorporated the image into their designs, and indeed the great film by Gregory Kuzintsev reflects this also. Hamlet's Denmark bashing makes the other two men rather nervous, not least, perhaps, since their livelihood rests on their being able to mine him for information. If he already considers it a prison, perhaps he is onto them and might suspect their motives or their honesty. Rosencrantz delicately tries to talk Hamlet down, saying, Then is the world one? Hamlet replies, A goodly one, in which there are many confines, wards and dungeons, Denmark being one of the worst. So... Now the whole world is a prison, with many areas of confinement, maybe wards or administrative areas, and of course many dungeons, of which Denmark is one of the worst. It's perhaps understandable that the reason this passage was removed or avoided was because Queen Anne, the wife of King James I, he the patron of Shakespeare's company, was from Denmark. Bad enough that the play has already suggested that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, openly calling it a prison, and a dungeon might have offended her sensibilities, and obviously that would not do. Smart as ever, Shakespeare immediately balances this negative opinion with dissent, as Rosencrantz counters, We think not so, my lord. Before things can get any more political, Hamlet switches things to the affairs of the mind. Why then, tis known for you, for there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. To me, it is a prison. This is another of the lines of the play that have entered common parlance. There's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Hamlet's point is that if Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't think Denmark is a prison, 
then of course it isn't for them. But to him, it certainly is. Rosencrantz pushes his luck now with a new idea. Why then, your ambition makes it one. Tis too narrow for your mind. What exactly might Rosencrantz mean by ambition here? Is he trying to goad Hamlet into admitting that he has his eye on the crown? Is he opening a door for Hamlet to confide that he's not happy that Claudius is king, that perhaps this prison-like feeling is because his ambitions are trapped by his circumstances, and so Denmark feels too small for the great things he has in his mind? Whatever it is, Hamlet is no fool, and he certainly doesn't take the bait. Oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space, were it not that I have bad dreams. Not at all, he's saying. He could be a tiny creature, like Queen Mab when she's described so magnificently by Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet, and count himself a king of infinite space. All would be just fine, except for the fact that he has bad dreams. Then, as now, nobody quite knew what caused bad, or indeed good, dreams, but a troubled night of sleep is something with which we can all sympathise. For Hamlet to blame his cares on such a pedestrian problem is a sly move but the boys can't really argue with it. Guildenstern, of course, is not to be deterred, and he tries to go further. Which dreams, indeed, are ambition, for the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. And this line has given me some trouble. Does poor Guildenstern mean that ambition itself is just a dream lacking substance, or that ambitious people are just dreamers, or that Hamlet's bad dreams are a result of his vaulting ambition, the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. Hamlet counters with something more relatable. A dream itself is but a shadow. That much we can follow. A dream is just a shadow. Rosencrantz, over the tryhard, attempts to make the metaphor simpler and extends it nonetheless, saying, Truly, and I hold ambition of so airy and light a quality that it is but a shadow's shadow. So perhaps ambition is just the shadow of a dream. Huh? <laughs> What's worth noting is that Hamlet seems lucid, and the other two are talking a lot more eagerly, but saying a lot less. But now Hamlet takes it on home in a passage that has stumped no less a brain than Samuel Coleridge himself. Then are our beggars' bodies, and our monarchs, and outstretched heroes the beggars' shadows. Shall we to the court, for by my fay I cannot reason. The idea seems to be something like Beggars, or people with no ambitions for greatness, are solid, corporeal bodies. But monarchs, and outstretched heroes, and therefore legitimately ambitious people, are beggars' shadows. Because ambition is the shadow of a shadow. I personally like to think that Hamlet is messing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern here, tormenting them and tying them up with their own images. He suggests that they go to the court. But we are already in the lobby, presumably of the Danish court. We are still in the lobby, remember, in this very long scene. So he either means to suggest that they go to the royal presence, perhaps the throne room, or even just to a court of law. The arguments over what is a dream or ambition or a monarch or a beggar's shadow are certainly confusing, and Hamlet claims, by my faith, my faith, that he cannot reason or argue. Since he has no more arguing left in him, perhaps they should go to the court. Performed at speed and with good wit, this scene should feel, I think, like Hamlet showing the other two men who's really in charge. The little references to honesty and truth and the suggestion that they go to court can also have a little menace in them. He's maybe hinting 
that he knows full well that they are on Claudius's payroll and that they are here to spy on him. The two young men answer Hamlet's suggestion in unison. We'll wait upon you. But Hamlet won't hear of them acting like servants, waiting upon him in that manner. He says, no such matter. I will not sort you with the rest of my servants, for to speak to you like an honest man, I am most dreadfully attempted. Again, he gets in a little dig about honesty. He wouldn't dream of counting Guildenstern and Rosencrantz among his servants, God forbid. And to speak to them like an honest man, quote unquote, remember that, he is most dreadfully attended. This could be Hamlet referring to his bad dreams which attend him nightly, or it could be a comment on how everyone in the Danish prison state is a spy working for Claudius, and they're all dreadful attendants. It could, of course, just be a comment that these days they simply can't get the staff, and that he really is just dreadfully attended by poor servants, but that's hardly interesting enough, now is it? This brings us to the end of this folio-only segment of the text. Next time we will return to the quarto, as Hamlet continues trying to get the truth out of his excellent good friends. I have a few fun extras in the show notes for this episode, about Queen Anne of Denmark and indeed Queen Mab, so be sure to check them out on thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.